This is, uh, this is what it says starting in, in Romans. This is Romans 5, 20 and 21. Now, the law came in to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more, so that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. So the reason I wanted to read you that is because I want to see how that is like a transition into six. Like when we get into six, we can't read it apart from all the stuff we learned last week about Jesus and Adam. So then in six, he begins by saying, well, then what shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin, once for all, but the life that he lives, he lives to God. So you must also consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been, have been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. For sin will have no dominion over you since you are not under the law, but under grace. So what we're going to do with this passage, uh, and I know it's kind of similar to what we've done with previous passages in this book, is we're going to take two weeks on this passage, on this set of scriptures, these 14 verses, particularly 1 through 14. And we're going to break it into two weeks. Today we're going to focus more on that transition of like how this fits with what he's saying about Adam and what he's saying about Jesus and Adam in chapter 5. And then when we get into, then next week we'll get into more of the specific themes like the theme of baptism, which is very important. It's a very important theme and we don't want to ignore it. But if we don't capture the heart behind the bigger idea, the part that we're going to talk through today, then a theme like baptism is actually going to come across far less significant than what it really is. So remember, we've got to remember that Paul here in chapter 6, if you remember the very first thing he says here, he's saying that he says everything that we just read he says as a way to answer that first question and that question is are we to continue in sin that grace may abound are we to continue in sin that grace may abound and the obvious answer is no right that's the obvious answer obviously we're not to continue in sin that grace may abound Just because the grace of God covers your sin, that doesn't give you an excuse to live in that sin and do that sin. We all know that, right? Does everybody know that? Makes sense, right? I I think most of you in your hearts, you know that. But I want you today to search your hearts for just a moment and ask yourself why. 
Why? Seriously, if you truly believe that the blood of Jesus Christ meets you in your darkest place, if you truly believe that it meets you in your darkest hour, in the broken places of your heart, when you're at your bottom, if you truly believe, as Paul says in Romans 8, that nothing separates us from the love of God, nothing, then why not continue acting on anything that your heart desires to do? Why not keep living however you want to do? You know, we heard, we've been studying this last week, life is a vapor. Why not enjoy life and do whatever it is that you want to do in this life here on this earth? Why? Just think about it for a second. Just think about it. My kid's last day of school was this week. Uh, uh, Fiona's last day was Wednesday. She's in pre-K. And then Brooklyn and Millie's last day was Friday. So they had a half day Friday. And so I had Fiona with me Thursday and Friday. And I was driving on Friday uh, to pick up the kids from school. With Fiona, and while we were in the car, I was showing Fiona the, um, the the Bob Marley song "Redemption Song." Do you guys know that song? Like, "Oh pirates, yes they rob I." That song sold I to the merchant ship. Uh, I'm sure most of you are familiar with it. And Fiona, um, she starts singing along with the song because she loves to sing. And then she stopped, and it kind of in the middle of the song, she kind of stopped for a moment, and she said to me, "Daddy, is this a sad song?" And I thought about it for a minute. I sort of ran the words over in my head. And then I responded. And I said, well, no. I don't consider this to be a sad song. To which she responded, well, it sounds like a sad song. And I said to her, to me, it's a hopeful song. And um, she said, well, what's it about? Is it about someone who gets robbed? Right, that's the first line of the song. And she's kind of like, how is that hopeful? What's hopeful about that? And this is what I said to her. I, I explained to her, it's a song about a revolution. And of course, five-year-old Fiona, of course, we all know what the next question is. What's a revolution? Right? And again, I had to think about it. I had to think, how do I communicate this to a five-year-old? And so I sort of, I took a couple of the lines from the song, because it's what it was about, obviously. And then I kind of added some things to it. And this is what I said, well trying to explain to her. I said, you know what, it, it's, it's when there's something in the world that isn't as it should be. A dominating thought, right? It's a, a controlling thing that's doing something that it shouldn't be doing, but it's getting away with it. And enough people decide, we're not going to let them get away with that anymore. We're not going to stand aside and just let this happen this way anymore. We aren't going to let it be this way anymore. And instead of waiting for the solution to come from some other place, we're going to do whatever it takes in our own lives. We're going to sacrifice if we need to, whatever we may have the potential of losing. We're going to put it all on the table and we're going to do what we can to be a part of the solution ourselves. That's a revolution. See, Romans 5, it's a very important passage. Uh, We've been on it for several weeks now. And now we're kind of over that hump and we're trying to get into 6. But Romans 6 really seals Romans 5 and what it says. And to separate the two as if they're two different bodies of just completely unrelated work would completely miss one of the most crucial points of Paul's entire argument. And we've been saying this and we've been hinting at this for the last couple of weeks, but most people read Romans 5 and they think that the big idea, they think the big point of Romans 5 is that, is that we've all inherited the sins of Adam 
and we're all guilty, and the world's never going to be the same because of Adam. Like, that's the big idea. The world is not as it should be, right? But that is what? That's a sad song. That's a sad reality. But the bigger point of Romans 5 is that if that's true, if Adam has that kind of power, and if what Adam did was enough to condemn all men, then how much more does this one act of righteousness done by Jesus Christ lead to justification and to life for all men? Because Jesus Christ actually did something on the cross and through the resurrection that ignited a revolution that you and I are actually called to continue. Jesus Christ entered into a world where people had strayed from the beginning of time, from the moment at that fruit. They just strayed for thousands of years. They've, by that time, they've settled feuds by going to war with each other and killing each other. They, 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 they pony up with an eye for an eye. They retaliated. They had enemies. They marginalized women. The government was huge and it was militant and it took every single thing that it wanted by force from whomever it wanted, whenever it wanted. It taxed people so heavily that some believed, some scholars believe it taxed them to the 90% area in which basically people were in total poverty and most, more, even more importantly, they were in total dependence of the government. So the government provided what they need so that they would also do everything that the government told them to do. And then along comes Jesus, and he says, hey, blessed are the meek. The meek are the ones that are going to get the earth. Not the military, not the armies, not the people who take it by force, and it looks like they're going to get it all. He says, no, the meek, the ones not who are weak, but the ones who actually are willing to say, hey, you know what? I have enough control that I can control my strength in this moment and actually do the right thing. I'm not going to take things through violence. Blessed are the merciful, he said, the people who are constantly showing mercy to one another, constantly loving one another. He says, blessed are the persecuted he gave us something entirely different. And he demonstrated, quite frankly, a new way to be human, a new way for us to live our lives. And he talked about a kingdom that has no end at all. And he established a church by which that kingdom would be brought to earth. This is very significant. He, he established a church that, and, and then through that church, he will now bring that kingdom to earth. He's doing it through a body of people, of transformed, redeemed people. A collective, unique, distinct group of people working together. And our job here is to bring what's up there down here. That's our purpose. Paul says it like this in Colossians, I think it's 1.18. He says, the church, in the church, Christ is the head and we are the body. We are his body. So it takes kind of image bearing, that idea of image bearing that we've been on for a while. It kind of takes it to a whole other level if you really think about it. When it's not just about people who look like Jesus. Jesus actually wants to do something in you in which a change takes place in which Jesus can say, that's my body on earth. They're it. They're doing what I would do. They understand the revolution. They're not passive about the things that matter. They speak up for the marginalized. They love their neighbor as themselves. They love God with all their hearts, with all their soul, with all their mind. I can trust them to do life the same way that I do life. So, if we are to continue then the same way that we did before Jesus got a hold of us, if we keep living as if Adam is the ultimate authority in our lives, then our lives will not amount to anything of any value to the world that we're actually called to, be, to reach and to the garden that we're called to cultivate. Think about that. 6.1 says, do we stay the same? Do we stay the same? Well, no, we do not stay the same. But if you never realize why, you don't stay the same, then th really, 
there's honestly no reason to change anything at all. If you don't know why you're changing, there's no reason to, change, to, to, to ever change. If, you're, if your salvation, the way I put it, and I know this sounds harsh, but if, like, if your whole salvation is just sort of this, this gross, you-centric way to pat yourself on the back and say, okay, I get to go to heaven now, like if that's what your salvation is about, affirming you that you're going to get to heaven one day, then by, yeah, yes, please, by all means, keep doing what you're doing. Don't change anything. But if you live your entire life that way, you will live missing the entire point of your life. And you're really still bound to the fruit of, of, the, first, of the first Adam, a man who couldn't avoid the only thing that God told him to avoid. That's the whole point of Romans 5. The point of Romans 5 is that the cross of Jesus Christ is more powerful than the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And anyone who's in Christ no longer is in Adam. That's the conclusion that Paul draws in Romans 5.18. And then he locks it with utter clarity in chapter 6. But what now? We know all that, but what now? Where do we go from here? How does this play out in our lives? What do our lives need to look like? What can we do from here? There's a passage in the Sermon on the Mount uh, in, in Matthew 7, and, and Jesus uses very similar language actually to that we get of the garden and of the two trees, and Jesus talks about how there are two gates. And he says one is a narrow gate, and that gate leads to life, and then there's another, there's a wide gate, and that wide gate leads to destruction. It says, enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction. That's easy. But those who enter by it are many, and those who enter by it are many. But the gate is narrow, and the way is hard that leads to life, and those who find it are few. Now, if you actually read this passage closely, what you're going to find of destruction is that the gate is wide. Like, it's easy to go through it. And then it, it's wide, and then the path is actually very easy to take. So it's describing a road that one would ultimately go down that would lead them toward death. 1 John 5 talks about that. It talks about a, a, a sin that leads you on a pathway to death. Basically, the idea is you go through a gate, you open the door, you eat from the wrong tree, and then what it does is it opens you up for a world in which now it's actually very easy for you to continue opening those doors. It's very easy for you to continue down that path, and the reason for that is you already took that first leap. You already took that first step. What comes to my mind is what Paul says in Ephesians uh, 4, 18 and 19 when he talks about how our hearts become callous. How they've gotten so used to things being a certain way that it no longer bothers them when they do those things. So, I mean, most of us understand this, right? When, you, when, when we sin, most people, when you have sin in your life, you have a conviction about doing that right? You're like, hey, wow, I shouldn't do that. It's very difficult to do something in opposition of that conviction. Usually there's a guilt involved. Usually there's some shame. And as you're doing it, you know in your heart, I shouldn't be doing this thing that I'm doing right now. This is not right. I, we've got to put a break on this. We've got to stop this. And the second and the third time, though, what happens? It becomes a little easier to do, doesn't it? Right? Because once you've opened that door, the road becomes easy. The more comfortable you are with sin, the more you're going to sin. It's going to entangle you more and more, and you won't even realize that it has you because you're just so comfortable with it. But watch this. See, so many people don't understand what this passage in the Sermon on the Mount was saying. Most people believe that the second part, the part about the, the narrow gate, the hard road, most people believe it's saying that it's difficult to come to Jesus. That it's a very long road, it's a long journey. And the way that you live your life, 
your whole time will determine whether or not you make it through that narrow gate or not. That's how most people read that, which is completely wrong. It's not at all what it's saying. First of all, you get first the first thing, and I'll come back to this in a second, but the gate is first. You enter through the gate first. It's very important. But the gate, the word gate there, he says the gate, not the word gate, but the, the word narrow for the word, he says the gate is narrow. The literal there is, is the Greek word stenos. It means a straight, like not straight, like with a G-H-T, like straight, like um, it, uh, as in it has no bends or it has no turns. It's a straight as in a very narrow passage of water that connects two bodies of larger water. Uh, it's small, it's cramped, it's straight as in you'd see straight in a straight jacket, like it's something very constrained. What it's saying is, yes, there's only one way. And that one way has nothing to do with whether or not you tithe, whether or not you go to church every Sunday, whether or not you do or don't do drugs, or if you're really nice to everyone. That's not what it has anything to do with at all. It's limited to and only to Jesus alone. And what Jesus did for you and for all of us alone. Salvation is by the grace of God through faith that the blood of Jesus is enough to cover you in what you've done in your life. Because you know I can't save myself. I know I can't save myself. I know that. So you enter that way. And that is the only way. And it doesn't matter how beat up, how broken, how bruised, how wounded you are when you approach that gate. It doesn't matter what you did on your way to the gate that day. If you enter through Jesus, you enter. And it's done. But we talked two weeks ago about the tree of life and how man rejected in the Garden of Eden the tree of life and how Jesus Christ himself now actually has come and is the tree of life. He's a living embodiment of the tree of life. Again, so much, so much of the Bible is a retelling of that story in Genesis. It, that's why it was so significant of, that we understand that story and how it resonates with all the other stories. Because in the garden, there were two trees that were named, right? One represents life, the other represents death. And the tree that represents life, right, in the same way, in the same way as the gate, the tree of life was available to Adam and Eve before they did anything to earn it. Right? It wasn't like, oh, cool, you've done this and this and this, now you can partake of the tree of life. It was right there, right in front of them, all along. And on the other side of that tree was the life that God intended for them, eternal life, the life that he dreamed for them to have. Genesis 3 tells us if they would have eaten from that tree, they would have lived forever. Now, in Matthew 7, Jesus says this. He says, after you enter the narrow gate, right, after you make that crucial decision, which is the starting point, not the end point, Right? Once you come to terms with the fact, I cannot save myself, I need Jesus, after that, he, it says the way is hard that leads to life. Now, this concept, actually, if you actually read it closely, you see it's very contrary to every other religion that's ever existed. Because again, the tree comes first. The gate comes first. Every other religion is if you do this, 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 and this, then you get to go through the gate. But in Jesus, you enter first. You don't have to do anything to enter besides enter. But then we translate what happens on the other side. Right? We translate this part of the way is hard. Some translations say narrow. So we get this impression that, okay, Jesus saves you. But then he puts you like on an 80-story 80, 80 building and you have to like walk a tightrope between them the whole entire time, like really, really thin rope. And if you slip and fall, then you have to get saved again. Or you, you just fall back on the, the wide road. But that's not what it's saying either. The Greek word translated as hard 
the way is hard, is the word the labo. And what it means is to press hard upon. And what this image is, is it's the image of grapes that are being pressed into wine. It's kind of similar to like we talked about a few weeks ago when we talked about the crucible uh, and how the silversmith uh, uh, would put the the silver in the crucible under the fire and it would separate the dross from the silver so that he could purify the silver, right? It's the extreme heat that does that. When you press grapes and when you squeeze the juice out for the wine, what is left of the grapes can just be thrown away. You can get rid of it. It's only squeezing out what's actually necessary for the wine, So when you go through the gate, when you become a Christian, when you realize that the point of life is not acquiring things and building barns and bigger barns and going places yourself and and always being happy and never actually having any real significance or any real impact on our world, when you realize that the purpose of life is to bring others to Jesus and to bring Jesus into other arenas— and to lift other people up and to be a person who actually adds kingdom value to our world, when that happens, you are submitting your life to a process in which Jesus can come in there and he begins on the other side of the gate, okay? After you're already saved, he begins to do a work on your heart in which he removes that seed, right? He removes that dross. You, you get rid of the things that are preventing you from being the person that the world needs you to be. So we could say it like this, the, the narrow gate is justification. One way. Jesus, if, if God declares you righteous, you are righteous. That's all it takes. But the hard road, you could call it maybe sanctification. Today we're going to call it glorification. Because the idea of what Paul's saying here in chapter 6 particularly is you've got to figure out what are the parts of your life that are not properly reflecting the glory of God in our world. And as an image bearer of God, What are the things that need to come off of us so that we can represent God to the world in a way that he actually needs us to do? And that's what Paul's getting at here in Romans 6. Yes, you've been justified. I think by now, hopefully, we realize we've all been declared righteous by God. Yes, you're not bound by the sin of Adam anymore. Yes, Jesus Christ is the hope of glory, and he lives in you. But what now? Do you just take that grace and keep living the same way that you've always lived? said it like eight times, but the obvious answer is no. The answer is no. But if you think the answer is no because you think that if after you do something wrong, Jesus is going to have to save you again, then you missed it. Paul says in the same section, he says, Jesus, he, you know, he'll never die again. He doesn't need to do it more. You have to keep, like, we think that he has to like keep dying over and over again for us. He doesn't. It was a once and for all moment. So you don't keep sinning just because you're being made more like Christ. That's the reason we don't sin. We don't, it's not, it's not like we, we don't live in this arena where we say, hey, um, now we can just do anything that we want. No, we, li- we don't sin because we're being made more like God. We're being made more like Jesus. We're being made more in his image. And, we're, and we are being made that way so that we can bring Christ to those arenas of our world. So there's just there's two verses in this, in this of, of all these verses we read, there are two that I really want to kind of hone in on today, uh, just for a couple minutes, and then we'll look at some of the others next week. But what we're going to look at is crucial for us to understand the significance of how chapter 6 kind of springs off of chapter 5. This is uh, verse, chapter 6, verse 5 and 6. He says, For if we have been united with him in a death like his... 
we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin may be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. First, I actually want to look at the second half. I want to look at six first. Uh, and I think that'll help us understand verse five. Uh, Anders Nygren wrote a commentary probably right around 1950, some last century, about the middle of the 20th century. And uh, in his book, I love the way that he explains that when a person is in Christ, when a person comes to Jesus, when they become in Christ, that means that he's in the body of Christ, right? You don't just come to Christ and you're kind of an island in Christ, like you're, you're added to a body. Like, what that means is that you're a part of something bigger than just being a person who's saved. Like, we can get saved and we can make that very individual, but that's not the point. The point is we're, we're part of something bigger than just a person who's saved. But the thing that he, he goes on to explain, the thing that makes this so complicated with humanity is he's also a person of the flesh. He's also a member of Adam, and thus by default, he's part of a body of fallen humanity. Again, that's something bigger than just a person who's fallen, or a person who's sinned, or a person who's flawed. Let me try to explain as best as I can with this. Um, of course, when we think of the body of Christ, what do we think of? We think of the church. Most of us probably think the church. We think the church. We talked about this when we did our discipleship stuff, so some of you have, have heard this breakdown a little bit before. Um, but Jesus in Luke 9, uh, 58, he, he's talking to a man who's willing to follow Jesus. He's like, I want to follow you. I'll be your disciple. And this is what Jesus says to him. He says, okay, foxes have holes, and the birds of the air have nests, but the Son of, God has, uh, the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. And most people, of course, when they hear this, they think he's saying, okay, Jesus has nowhere to sleep. He's homeless. Like, oh, poor Jesus. He has nowhere to go. What are we going to do? And it's like he's asking this guy, hey, are you willing to sleep without a pillow? Like, is that, are you willing to count the cost so much that you're going to have to go to bed without a pillow some nights? Well, no. That, that's not what Jesus is saying. Jesus was a rabbi. Jesus traveled. He stayed wherever he wanted to most nights. He goes to Zacchaeus in the tree. He's like, dude, I'm staying at your house tonight. Like, Jesus, when he wanted a place to sleep, he had a place to sleep. But Jesus did not come to establish a bed for himself. Jesus came to establish a kingdom for himself, a kingdom, a kingdom of God, the kingdom of God. And he came to raise up a body of people who could actually represent that kingdom by representing him and by reproducing the life that he modeled. Foxes reproduce in holes. Birds lay eggs in nests. These are, this is reproductive language. It's the place that they reproduce. And Jesus is saying, okay, birds and foxes have a place to reproduce themselves, but as of now, I don't yet. As of now, the church has not yet been established. I have no body yet to place my head on. Now, obviously, that imagery becomes, makes a lot more sense later when you get to Colossians 1.18 when Paul says, okay, the church is already established now. And Paul says the church is the body of Christ and Christ is the head of the church. So Jesus was letting that dude know that I'm looking for people who will mobilize to actually become the church, my body. And they have to be willing to follow my head, follow my lead, follow my example. But here's, the, here's where it gets tricky, and this is why that commentary helped me so much. If you're going to view the church as the body of Christ, you're going to view us as, okay, how do we encapsulate everything Jesus is to be a force to reckon with that will change the world? If we truly believe we have the power when we come together to change the world, then perhaps when we read body of sin, 
especially in light of the way that Paul describes sin, not only as a verb, but also as a noun, like he does, like in 3, um, nine, when he says, this is a, it has the power, we're literally under this power, the Jews are under it, the Greeks are under it, the power of sin. So if we're going to view the church that way, it would be worth considering that a body of sin is not just a sinful person. It's not just a person who has sin in their lives. But as we talked about last week, it's actually something bigger. It is a bigger sinful system. It is a power that controls the world, or at least seeks to control the world. A power that, it's, it's the spirit of Adam that's still trying to reign and still trying to have power in, on this earth. Uh, Matthew Cronson has a book about this called The Emergence of Sin. But catch this. I, I was so convicted as I was reflecting on this this passage, and as I was reflecting on the Sermon on the Mount and the way of Jesus, especially when I kind of tried to line it up with my own life and the things that they don't always line up the way that I'd like them to. Whenever we live in such a way that is Christ-like, we're bringing the kingdom of heaven to earth. But whenever we don't live in such a way that is Christ-like, that is loving our neighbor, that is turning the other cheek, that is showing mercy, that's mourning with those who mourn, that's giving to those who ask. When we fail to live the way of Jesus, we are participating not in the body of Christ, but in the body of sin. We are feeding the very system that our entire revolution is against. But Paul says it like this way. He says, uh, if you're in Christ, anyone in Christ, our old self is crucified with Christ and who we once were, right? If, if the person who we once were, we come to terms with the fact that Jesus died for that person, right? We don't have to be controlled by that person anymore. We don't have, we're not gonna be held accountable for that person anymore because Jesus already was. He says that if we come to terms with that and actually share in that with Christ, then it says the body of sin will be brought to nothing because the way of Jesus is the only way to bring down the systems that are all about ourselves, the systems of self and of selfishness and of self-righteousness and of self-indulgence and of everything else in our world that teaches us that life is just about us and we're supposed to uh, figure out how can we get further and how can we climb higher and how can we have more and how can we rule over other people. Guys, the reality is the world is extremely off-balanced. Very, very off-balanced. Because most people are in this for themselves. But the way of Jesus is going to bring injustice to its knees. It is going to literally reduce sin down to nothing. But it can only happen when you realize that it is the cross of Jesus Christ. It is that straight gate that will do a miracle, of your, miracle in your life and it will meet you right where you are. But once you're through that gate, and once Jesus is actually in you, you've got to let yourself get pressed. You've just got to. You've got to be open to the Holy Spirit coming in and pointing out areas of your life that says, maybe we need to work on this area. Maybe we need to grow a little in this way. We need to figure out what are the areas that we've grown callous to that the Spirit's saying, hey, you know what? We need to wake up to this thing, this moment right here, and we need to solve this. Maybe the Spirit's telling you, speaking, speaking into your heart about things that you thought this wasn't even a big deal at all, and yet all of a sudden you're, the Spirit's just saying, you know what? This is actually getting in the way of the person that I created you to be. Finally, verse five. It says, for if we have been united with him in a death like his, which we'll focus on a lot more next week, 
we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. Again, we'll talk next week about baptism. And Paul is saying, um, what Paul's saying here is that in baptism, what we're doing is we're joining in a death like his, meaning that when we come to Christ, the old self has to die. And we we get that. When we come to Christ, the, the power of Christ literally crushes the power of sin in our lives. It no longer has any authority over us at all, right? Verse 14 actually says that sin will have no dominion over you whatsoever because you're not under the law, you're under grace. So so this whole power, right? Sin as a body has been brought to nothing and now we can live free. But read this closely and I want you to actually think about what Paul is actually saying here. He's saying that if we experience the death like his, If we gave our lives to Jesus, right? If we allowed our sins to be nailed to the cross with him. Like that part's easy for us, right? Please, it's so, it's gracious, it's mercy, please do that, right? If we allowed the spirit to come into our hearts, this is when it gets a little bit harder though, and actually point out those areas that need to be pressed. And if we're actually willing to die to our own flesh so that we can live for Jesus, then Paul says, well then certainly you'll also have a resurrection like his. And as I was praying about this, And as I was studying this, this is what I felt like God spoke to me about this. And I know this might sound like, that's stupid, but I feel like a lot of people confuse resurrection and ascension. Like, don't confuse resurrection for ascension. And I know that sounds absurd. Like, obviously, why would we confuse those? But but I'm telling you, it's not that obvious for some people. Most of us, we read, we share in a resurrection like his, and we read this envisioning ourselves being teleported to heaven like he was. Being joined in an ascension. Like, am I wrong? Is that, what do you think of when you think of a resurrection? We think that it's saying, just like Jesus died, rose again after three days, and was eventually went to heaven, which I believe would be in heaven with God, but we think that what Paul's saying is going to happen to us in that moment is that. But resurrection is not about heaven. Resurrection is about new life. Resurrection is about transformed life. Ephesians 2 says that we are dead in our sins. Like we are dead in our trespasses. When you're dead, you don't need a doctor. When you're dead, you don't need medicine. You need a miracle. You need God to do something that only God himself can do to breathe life into you. That's, that's, he, only God can call something out of nothing. And that's what he did with Jesus. That's what Jesus was the image of when he resurrected. It's proof that God is big enough to bring dead things back to life. He can make them live again. But when he does it, he does it with a purpose. Think about this. You want a resurrection like Jesus's? Think about the resurrection of Jesus. Think about the stories we read about the resurrection of Christ. As after his resurrection, first thing that happens, he appears first to women. He empowered them with the very, very first message to be message bearers of the hope of the resurrection. They were the first ones to get it. Jesus totally flipped religion on its head with that one. Still to this day, Don and I talk about this all the time, still to this day there are people who are like, uh, women can't preach. Um, okay, if women can't preach, there's no empty tomb. It's not there. That, it doesn't exist. That only, we only have that story because of women. A- after that, Mark's gospel specifically said Jesus appeared first to Mary Magdalene. Whom, it actually says he appeared first to Mary Magdalene, whom he had cast out seven demons from. It's like he's literally... It's, it's, it's like Jesus is like looking at this thing and be like, okay, who's the most broken, unconventional, unexpected person that I can show up to and that will be my first witness? Mary Magdalene, let's use her. 
After his resurrection, he goes and he finds Peter, the man who had denied him three times, abandoned him in his darkest hour and left him to die alone. And Jesus comes and the first thing he does is he restores Peter. He reconciles with Peter. He cooks Peter breakfast. He calls him all over again and says, Peter, I have a plan for your life. You're going to change the world. You're going to lead the church. It's going to be awesome. He did not count Peter's past against him. After he resurrected, he gave the disciples the great commission. He said, okay, here I am. I'm alive. It's proof. It's awesome. Go into all the world and make more of yourself. Do what I did for you, do for the whole world. Do not sit in that attic all day. Yes, wait till the Holy Spirit comes on you. But when he does, that's your cue that the mission is on now. You're not here to sit around and feel good. You're here to go and change the world. Sharing in a resurrection like Christ is talking about new life here and now in which you are so transformed in your heart and in your mind that you can no longer sit back and watch while the world burns. Instead, you have to get up off your butt and you need to go find needs and fill them. You go and find practical ways to show Jesus to the world that needs him. You're the first to apologize. You're the first to reconcile. You're the first to set that table that we've been talking about. And I've, I've, I've said it a few times this morning already, but today is Pentecost Sunday. This is the day that we... We celebrate the Holy Spirit. We get excited for what he's done. And it's amazing. What happened in Acts 2 is one of the most empowering and important moments of our entire church history. But for so many people, Pentecost is all about feeling and feeding this feeling that they feel. Like getting a feeling and just feeding that. And feeding on that and feeding on that. But the entire purpose of the power of the Holy Spirit in that moment and in every moment thereafter is to empower you and I to have what we need to live the resurrection kind of life in our community. You were made in the image of God and you were made to reflect and to spread the glory of God to the entire world. And God has given you the tools to do it. But at some point, we all need to come to terms with the fact that our life is for other people. We exist for others. The true church of Jesus Christ is not a bunch of people locked in a room waiting for Jesus to swoop us up into heaven someday. The church is the body of people who are igniting a revolution of hope in all the spaces that are broken, in all the songs that seem sad. Jesus has given us the keys to the kingdom of heaven. He's given us the ability to cultivate the world that he dreams of. But once again, you, you have to ask yourself that question. You've got to ask, well, which Adam is more powerful. Is it, is it the first atom? Or is it the second atom? Which body is more powerful? Is it the body of sin that's seeking to destroy the world? Or is it the body of Christ, who we all believe is the only hope for the world? That's the one I think is more powerful.